I'm Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Mary Lundberg. This is part two of our Swedbank case series. And this time around, we're going to be looking at KYC, but Mary and I are going to be joined by an additional participant today. Over to you, Marie. Thank you, Sam. Great to be back. We are joined today by Ian Hutton. Ian, who has vast experience from doing anti-financial crime, crime prevention from both offshore and currently in London. Thank you, Ian, for joining us. Good afternoon, and thank you very much, Marie, for that great introduction. There are these strange customers that have been categorized in this case as the HRNRs. Who are they? So they are the high-risk, non-residential customers within the Swedbank group, and specifically in the Baltic uh, entities. What does it take for you to become an HRNR? An HRNR, I love the acronym, by the way, is a non-resident legal entity, a company registered outside of the EU or another country in the EEA. What was the context behind this customer category? So I think that we need to go back to remembering where we are geographically in the world, right? So the Baltics, of course, all the three countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania borders to Russia. So they actually have a very good client base of former Russian people. First of all, former Russian people still living in these countries, but also doing business with Russia as as a country. And the majority of the companies then have the ultimate beneficial owner not being from Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania, but perhaps being Russian. Why is it that it was so attractive for Russian customers or beneficial owners of legal entities who happen to be Russian? Well, first of all, I think that we need to wind back the clock a little bit furthermore, because before these countries liberated themselves from the Soviet Union, they spoke Russian, and they still do in some some extent. So if I can do business in another country, but I can use my mother tongue to do it, that's a very good business concept. And then coming back to understanding the Russian culture, understanding the Russian way to do business, then it's, it's a win, I would say. We're going to focus on one particular customer who's described it as HRC1. Can you give us a bit of information about this customer? When we say it's one customer, it's actually a group of customers. I would say it's even more than a group. It's a small village of companies because it's somewhere in this report, allegedly up to over 250 different type of entities in a very, very complex structure. So the nature of the business that all these companies are doing is commodity trading. Of course, they're heavily linked to Russia, sort of a light version of KYC that Hansa Bank Group did back in the days, was actually finding out evidence that the ultimate beneficial owners were two Russian oligarchs. There were, might have been connections to what we called uh, political exposed persons as well. But the thing that they all had in common was that they were introduced by a former bank employee who had worked for the customer. That was very, very common in our region back in those days. The trust was there. That's how we did business. So we've got some initial onboarding, and then what happens with this customer? It's almost like they are testing the waters. They are testing the waters if they can you know, do these kind of transactions, if they can use new corporate vehicles. They are introducing new types of, of companies within the bank that you know, they need to have an account as well because they are part of the, of the group. Again, part of the village, I would say. So they introduce a new type of trust structure. It's actually from, from the Netherlands. It's a Dutch Dixting, and it has a, a trust-like structure. But in order to understand and who is the ultimate beneficial of this trust or this stitching, that's kind of hard. So again, I think that they rely upon information handed down to them. The stitching would identify the UBOs to, to the bank. 
In the initial KYC that they provided to the bank about the companies who were ultimately owned by the Stittings, they found out it was later on, it was a Russian law firm. Again, going back to uh, if you if you want to hide behind something, it's good to hide behind another company who has very restricted rules and requirements and can prove to have client privilege and you know allowed to keep things anonymously. So Ian, going back in the day, 2006, 2007, was it that uncommon to find out, particularly with foundation and Stoltz stiftings, that in fact, the person who is identified as the UBO was often a legal advisor or a law firm? The trusting company service provider who would have been engaged to set these up would have initially been on the front page of them. And of course, we're still looking at law firms as being reliable, trustworthy, and you take their bona fides that they have done the KYC in the background uh, to allow you to them to introduce the client to you. After 2007, you go through your risk management processes to see if anything had changed in the activity of the client to see if the risk rating had deteriorated in any manner. And strictly speaking, it was perfectly fine for, say, foundations to have named on the the foundation board uh, the name of your legal advisors if they were taking care of the entity, right? I wouldn't say that was untoward. Individuals who want to protect their privacy would use their professional advisors to set these things up, law firms, accountancy firms, in order to protect their privacy. It seems as though there were more people involved with these entities than was realized because some stuff starts to change in mid-2007, doesn't it? So yes, it actually spans. It goes from being a village to ultimately become a town. We have more people involved. We have seven individuals that is now pointed out or allegedly is to Russian oligarchs. The banking is allowed. It's business as usual. They are actually high revenue customers as well because they do a lot of money for the bank. But then again, they ultimately become a customer as well in the Swedish bank, which is kind of interesting because they are doing so many transactions and they're doing so many currency transactions that the Swedish bank needs to be involved. And then when we take a closer look at the KYC, we find out it's not as straightforward as it should be. And we understand there are in total five stitch things that are set up. What appears to be happening is there's some attempt, as Ian was describing, to maintain the discretion or confidentiality of these customers. For three of them, what they've done is they have named in the Stitting documentation that there's either an individual or a company, and they in turn are named as nominee shareholder. In the Declaration of Trust, though, it's claimed they're holding these rights and assign all profits and other monies back to the Stitchings themselves. Does that kind of make sense? The use of nominees quite common. It's again, it's there for efficiency. It's there to protect the privacy of those who want to have their wealth and and their affairs private. Things get a little bit more complicated. It's eventually discovered there aren't three of these structures. There are five Stitchings in total, and for two of them, they have no idea who the ultimate beneficial owners are, and that's because they discover that there are approximately 21 individuals of Russian nationality who appear to be rotated through as the ultimate beneficial owners of these entities. That seems like a bit of an unusual arrangement, and I'm not being rhetorical about this. Well, yes, I would say if you just look upon it like this, it's kind of strange. But not again, but if you come back to how the criminals use corporate vehicles for today, 
they use the same names, the same kind of people or they, the same kind of setup. And it's not that uncommon today to rotate these kind of individuals. You see, if you do a proper due diligence on, on your custom database today, you will probably see accountants or other people, you know, popping up. The names are quite common. And that's a one way to identify an issue. But in this case, I think it was kind of creative that they, the number was that vast. They weren't just using five or four, or, but they were using actually 21 different individuals, which without a detection system and use of data would made it, make it much harder to identify. Now, that might seem really obvious to people listening, because I've talked about five trust-like structures, 21 individuals being rotated through as the UBOs, acting as nominee shareholders. But when you think about it in the broader context, Marie, how many companies were these chitchings actually, if you like, the beneficiaries of? Yes, there's a lot more than a handful of companies in this. And I think that they had over 115 different bank accounts assigned to these different kinds of companies. This is really big then. We're not simply talking about a handful of companies, like a family trust structures. There's hundreds of legal entities that are set up. I understand many of them incorporated in the BVI. And then in turn with multiple bank accounts and some companies had more than one with the same bank. Well, that makes it easy to transfer funds, doesn't it? Because then you have all these bank accounts ready. They are active and they are valid. So it makes it easier to do this. And Please bear in mind, we need to come back to the definition of the high-risk non-resident com- uh, customers. So if you have all these setups with all these bank accounts, then it makes it easier for you to start you know, doing all the transactions that you need. And please bear in mind that one of the requirements to allow you to become a customer where you were trade financing or you were in the shipping industry. And if you're in the shipping industry, it makes sense, right, to have different accounts in different jurisdictions. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The point I just wanted to raise here is that by having so many UBOs rotating through the structure, you're diluting the beneficial ownership. In the day, you're looking at 25% beneficial ownership as being a trigger point to get KYC or client due diligence. But it wasn't just the dilution, it was actually the physical access to the KYC. It was not that uncommon that they actually stored different kind of customer KYC information, either in a drawer underneath the relationship manager's desk. They were perhaps password protected and, and, or on a file that was protected. But then again, there was the safe. So they were actually not saving it on the system and locking in a safe? Was it all that uncommon in the day in private banking, though, given the sensitivities of customers to to have some KYC offline, as it were? Of course. Your most sensitive of clients would only be known to a handful, and that would generally be the board. Now, back in the day, I'd say it wasn't common for the compliance officer or the MLRO to be on a board or even to be invited for the whole of the meeting. So even they may not have known, essentially, that there are these highly sensitive clients on the business's books in the financial crime compliance teams. If you don't have experience of handling sensitive clients, there is a tendency for the more junior staff to get very excited about clients coming from higher risk jurisdictions or clients who are involved in higher risk industry. And that excitement recalls a whole heap of work and unnecessary anxiety with those who are the private bankers, private wealth managers for these clients. So you can see why with the highly sensitive individuals, they'd want to have their privacy absolutely in lockdown. 
brown envelope clients is a term that we that we've heard about in the past where their details their information is really in lockdown let's be really clear we are not saying that's a justification for a lack of transparency what we want people to understand is it's quite easy in 2020 to give judgmental opinions about these things but really need to appreciate what the working culture was like at the time particularly in relation to these types of clients have you ever heard of a wallet co Marie, this is the first time I've heard this expression used in this case. What is a wallet co? A wallet company actually holds funds from trading, collecting payments from business ventures or allocate funds to different other holding companies. How was HRC1? How frequently were they using them and what were they using them for? Well, they were using it for to route money between the different enterprises and they, they did it frequently as well. It was said that the longer route of the money separated the, the source of money from other companies within the group, it minimizes the risk of inquiries and possible affiliation for the client. So it's absolutely a very easy way uh, on how to put a spin to it within the different accounts. I think this is a beautiful example when it comes back to on how you are structuring all of these transactions, that you have a very long-term plan, that you are using the bank in a long-term way to do all these illicit transactions. And that's why I refer it as to like a village or a town, because literally it takes a village or a town in order to keep this massive organization up and running. And some odd things began to happen in terms of these related entity transactions. One company in the group made a loan for 477,000 euros to another company in the group. Mm. Yet there was no purpose described in the loan documentation and there was no interest rate identified. So Ian, the idea of having no purpose written and no interest rate identified reminds me of the old days of trust. So through the, the trust structure, it wouldn't be uncommon for companies to flow money through to support these subsidiary companies in the business ventures that they were either going to buy or were managing. And we, uh, of course, we know that using loan to launder money to repay is a very common way to do it. Since the, the different subsidiaries or the different daughter banks are within the same group, they can rely upon each other's to have done the KYC part. There will be no poking, no, no interfering, no bothering the client. That's great. Don't poke the client for KYC. People don't really understand how these committees are supposed to operate. There's an inherent conflict. You have a relationship manager who's trying to come in and generate new business. There was actually a concerted business development campaign to get more business, not only from this HRC1 customer, but similar customers as well. We need to come back to and understand why they were still onboarding new clients, why they were adding to the town that is now slowly growing to become a city <laughs> because they were really, really good revenue within the bank. And of course, we the Clifford Chance report say that the high risk client won the group accounted for 26% of the, the revenue from the high risk non-residential clients. With these committees, if it was escalated up to, say, the board of directors, the board of directors would look at their duty and their duties to their shareholders. And that's where you find the commercial and pragmatic approaches coming to the fore because they're looking at their business, their bottom line. So writing new business of this scale was possibly looking very good for their bottom line. 
So let's just go back for a moment to these interesting wallet codes. Now, the relationship manager, according to the investigation report, had followed through in terms of going to this new activity committee, explaining why it was setting up these various structures. But it came with a very unusual set of transactions. And the way in which the risk, sorry, the relationship manager described them was, well, they're going to move money between common accounts at the same bank. And the reason why they want to do this is they want to move the money along the whole chain through its entities. The way it was sold by the relationship manager was, look, we're always complaining we can't get full transparency around this customer due to its complexity, et cetera. If we open these two accounts and allow these internal transactions, we'll get much better information about the client and then we'll control the movement of the money as opposed to if it's doing transactions outside of the bank. What actually happened with the movement of these monies? They used the different subsidiaries within the bank, in the group. And for a few days, it won't pay a million dollars that way. And then a few other days, it will come back. And I would say that this is a brilliant way of structuring. This is actually how you do it. This is when you read for AML certificates or whatever. And if you want to have a practical, good example on how to structure, this is absolutely a brilliant one because they were sending money one day from, a, from one account to another account, to a third account, to a fourth account, and then back again. And in fact, in one thing, in a period of just under two weeks, $100 million just went in one great big circle. So these kind of circular transaction, if they take place within the same group, chances are that they are not being monitored because no money is actually leaving the bank. It's not leaving the group. So Ian, there's a second example in this case, almost around the exact same time, moving through similar companies in the same family of the HRC1 customer's structure. This time it's for 200 million. What kind of questions at that time would have been helpful to try and get some comfort of this isn't just a structuring situation or could there be any questions you could ask? What's the money being used for? What is its purpose? It's almost as though it's a bit like a lazy example of trying to imitate kind of mitigating your FX risk, except they haven't bothered to really put the effort in to make it look like that. But it, it doesn't even look like uh, minimizing counterparty risk if you had that exposure at one bank. Or it could be that you have different invoices between the, comp- the companies. So you have a balance or, or a revenue. So you have the accounts payable or the accounts receivable. And therefore, you need to have that on the books in order to, you know, make up sort of like a profit in the end for the, for the different clients. From a um, forensic accounting perspective, it could have been invoices. It could have been accounts payable or accounts receivable. I suppose my controversial finding in one respect is the going into deep problem where there's so much pressure. This client is so important. They make such a difference to potential business that once you've accepted them, once you've let them through the door, you can't go back. That wasn't an uncommon sentiment then, was it? It's the golden goose that keeps on laying. Any thoughts, Marie? Well, yes, I'm going back to poking the client again because if customer structure actually makes us such a good revenue for the bank, there might be also a, a person benefiting from it, from, you know, the relationship manager could have received bonuses on, on this. His personal or her personal economy could be depending on, on these kind of relationship, you know, to be maintaining because it actually feeds them, you know, puts dinner on their table as well. And this revenue keeps the shareholders happy. Ultimately, yes. We now have more support for ending relationships where we we think the risk is too high, but it's not as easy as people think. So I'm not making excuses in this situation, but 
I'd love to hear from you, Ian, and then Marie. Given what we know about the structure and how many entities were involved in the assets they potentially held, given the fact they were involved with shipping, for example, you know, how hard is it to actually end a banking relationship with such a big client with so many entities? Without suspicion, then it would be remarkably difficult to to end a relationship of a client of this size, generating the revenues, paying the bonuses of the relationship managers, etc., and making the bank look as successful at shareholders. You are in financial services to generate profits. But Marie, also, how about how, I mean, these people didn't just have savings accounts, right? That wasn't the only product they had. No, they had different kinds. That's always adds to the complexity when you need to, to shut down a, a relationship. If there is interests, if there are positions, stocks, uh, funds, whatever, it, do you transport them? Do you actually ship them off to another bank or do you sell them? Uh, do you do that at, at, an, at a profit or at a, at a loss? If there's credits given, Given how do you actually make sure that the credit commitments is then fulfilled? If there's housing involved, it's even more complex. So it adds to the, the structure. It's easy to make the decision. So let's, yes, let's get rid of this customer due to the high risk. But then executing that path of actually getting the customer to be shut down could take years, unfortunately. As part of the report Clifford Chance creates, they go through a timeline about when it's time to end the relationship with this customer. And it literally shows it takes years to finally unwind this relationship. I don't think it's that uncommon. I think people don't understand there's a difference between dealing with your suspicious activity stuff and then when you're allowed to, depending on where you report your suspicious activity and the rules behind that, what's involved if you're actually allowed to end the relationship. And it, it, it strikes me there's so many different stakeholders, and especially, you know, somebody's got to tell the client and that's not going to be compliance, is it? No, it's going to be the relationship manager and probably one of the most senior persons within the financial services business. If there is such a large client involved, the other thing to add is who's going to accept this? And also going back to if there's a village who has grown to a town, where do you draw the line? Where, what kind of corporations or clients are you actually snipping off, right? Is, does it extend to the kids, to the to wife? Where do you end it? How long will, it's almost going back to it's, it's contagious, right? How long will you let that spread? We've, we promised as part of this podcast, we're not going to give light and fluffy statements that are unrealistic, like, you know, have a positive culture and zero tolerance, <laughs> and because nobody believes that, right? The truth is that's not, that's not workable. So Marie, coming back to culture, hearing about relationship managers withholding some of the KYC, not being fully transparent, compliance not being able to find out stuff they wanted to find out. I mean, how does culture fit into all of that? Generally, people would like to be part of stuff, right? People would like to be part of the community. And in order to be part of the community, you need to be successful. And if you can't be success successful, that's where the pressure sets in, right? I think we have to do better as compliance to make friends with the front line. What I read in this investigation report is two different rails of activity going on, frustration by the compliance function, confusion at the risk ma relationship manager level about what's expected of them versus what compliance is asking them for. And maybe part of the solution going forward is we have to find a way to speak to one another. It doesn't mean we're collaborating or we're colluding, but surely those divisions can't be so sharp that we still end up feeling like in some ways we're pitted against each other. I agree. 
be will not be collaborating we will not be colluding perhaps you can just cooperate compliance needs to be more approachable for the front line we need to get our lines of communication right so that we are the trusted advisor to that front line to help them through throughout the client relationship to understand what they need to get from the client to cover not only themselves but also the business and that's got to be good for everybody and on that note let's close off this second sweat bank podcast i'd like to thank mary lindberg and ian houghton for taking the time to take part this weekend we work seven days a week on this podcast so if you have any ideas or you'd like to provide us with any feedback feel free to reach out to us on linkedin or on the captivatedaudience.eu webpage have a great evening and stay safe